Apparently, I was hungry when I designed a lot of these studies. Uh, I mean, there's lots of lots of food and drink, that's for sure. <laughs> so it was the perfect excuse to uh, to eat chocolate, and it's probably the first time that I gained weight while composing. Warning: Do not listen to this episode if you're near a fridge. Definitely not, because what you hear on the show might make you hungry. How does sound affect our perceptions of products and brand experiences? That's where we're headed on today's show. Coming to you from the Brand Studio at UTA, this is The Findings Report. Hi, I'm Molly Schreiber. And I'm Larry Vincent. And in today's show, we're going to play with sound. So close your eyes. They don't have to close their eyes. Okay, so, okay, right. If you're driving, do not close your eyes. But sit back, relax, because we're going to have some fun. That's right. The fun part has to do with a little brain magic. Yes, I love magic. Ravenclaw all the way. Yeah, I'm more of a Gryffindor kind of guy. Yeah, I can see that. That tracks. Yeah, it does. This is a part of marketing that I love. You know, at one point, I thought about calling this podcast Stupid Marketing Tricks. Kind of a nod to David Letterman. You know what I'm talking about? Nope. Oh. Boy, that makes you feel. Every, do you feel old? I'm feel so sorry. Old. Oh, so yes, yes. <laughs> Never seen it. All right. Well, here, here's letter. The thing. Who? I will. I will back up. <laughs> There's a part of marketing research that explores how this bowling ball that sits atop each of our bodies processes material that marketers throw at us every day. And you lost me. Yep. Uh, we are two minutes in, and I'm lost. <laughs> okay. I'm talking about the research angle that studies, for example how consumers perceive a human personality in a brand, or how a certain color activates a specific emotion. You know, this human brain is really the last frontier for exploration. There's still so much we don't understand about it, and I'm fascinated by that crossroad where neuroscience meets practical insight for marketers. In today's case, we're going to focus on the ways that sound affects our perceptions of brands and product experiences. Right. We have two separate but connected stories. In the first half of the program, we're going to be meeting a researcher who published a study that found a strong correlation between our perception of a product size and the pitch, you know, how high or low something sounds, the pitch of that product's advertising. Meat. Cleaning products. Is that is that right? Yeah, it's on the right track. <laughs> All right, and then in the second half of the program, we're going to see how sound can affect our sense of taste. I will warn you now, if you love chocolate, you should prepare for some serious craving. Oh, then I'm screwed. Are you a chocolate person? Oh, yeah. Oh, 100% of the time, my home has dark chocolate. And if it doesn't, then I'll just, I'm going to move to a different apartment. Okay, so let's head to Atlanta, where our first guest... My name is Michael Lowe. I'm an assistant professor of marketing at the... Scheller College of Business uh, at Georgia Tech. And this paper that Michael and his co-author Kelly Haas published in the Journal of Marketing Research, it caught my attention. The title says it all. Sounds Big, the Effects of Acoustic Pitch on Product Perceptions. And what drew you to this study? Well, it's something I have wondered about in my professional life. Let's say you and I were creating an ad for a client or maybe doing a short video that has narration We have to cast a voice. Yes, I'm familiar with this. For a time, ladies and gentlemen, I was the voice of Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts. Okay, Mm -hmm. so you get the voiceover I do. But let me tell you about the buyer side. How do you decide whether it should be male or female? And what qualities do you want in that voice? Should it be high-pitched, low-pitched? Yeah, truly, I have no idea. As an actor, we walk into what is often a tiny, tiny recording booth and speak about 10 words and either we get the job or we don't. And then we go home and assume that they hated us personally. Nobody hates you, Molly. Yeah, wait, okay. Well, at least one director definitely personally hated me. Uh, but yes, most of the time it seems 
pretty random what voice they go with. I'll back that up. In my experience, it's totally subjective. Uh, here's how it goes down. The creative director and I, maybe the client too, if we want to include them, we banter around and make decisions that are just based on our intuition. You know, it, it feels like this should be read by a woman, you know? But I've always wondered if there wasn't a way to remove some of that guesswork. I'm guessing Michael was feeling the same way. And so it seemed that, to me at least, that we could we could at least be a, a little more scientific in, in you know, understanding some of the specifics. And, you know, I, I, hopefully that's what we've done, is contributed something that, that uh, marketers can go off of. And Michael comes by this thinking naturally. To go way back, music was, was uh, my undergrad. I've, I've been playing in rock bands since I was... Uh, <laughs> you know, 12 years old or so. And so I, I've always had a love of music, love of sound. And, and that's, I, to be quite honest, is, is where the interest came from. And, and it, it surprised me to a degree that, that, uh, that we hadn't studied it. So Michael wanted to take some of the guesswork out of the process. All right, science it up. All right, so here's where the science comes in. The aspect that Michael is exploring builds off of a growing body of research on sound symbolism. Sound symbolism sounds like bull****. That's, is that a bull****** phrase? I know. It does. A lot of our catchphrases <laughs> in the academic world. I get it. I get it. But I, I will tell you what it's not. Uh, I wrote about it in Brand Real because it applies to brand names. There's this curious psychological phenomenon revolving around how we perceive certain sounds that persist across pretty much every culture and language in the world. Sound symbolism is it's inference making. It's uh, the way that... that the sound of a word, is typically how it's been explored, uh, can affect our beliefs about what that word means or what that word represents. So some of the more notable studies, for example, Frosh as a fictitious ice cream name, you know, uh, makes us believe that that ice cream is going to be smoother or creamier than one named Frisch. Oh, okay, that's cool. Uh, side note, I am an amateur linguist nerd. That's what I do in my free time is study languages. And... I do want to hear more about this. Okay, talk to me. All right. Famous study, fictitious ice cream. Respondents were shown one of two names at random in this fictitious product description. Everything was the same except the brand name. The respondents who were shown the name Frosh rated the ice cream as thicker and creamier than those who were shown the brand name Frisch. The reason is due to sound symbolism and the way our brain processes deep back vowels like the aha in frosh versus short front vowels like the i in frisch. That makes sense to me. Ah uh, is a longer sounding vowel than i, the shorter sound. That's exactly how come Hagendas is so successful. Yes, Hagendas, Hagendas. Yeah, the same deal. Long, long vowel sounds. The, the, the research on, on sound symbolism is, is great, but the the fact of the matter is most sound we hear isn't words and and it's you know even even words or spoken language itself consists of of you know structural elements of sound the pitch tone and, and duration and, and uh, tempo and, and volume etc you know that that's common to all types of sound whether it's uh, verbal or not. So, Michael and Kelly picked one of those structural elements. What, what does something like pitch communicate uh, to a, a listener or, or to a consumer? If people are inferring things from sound and we take that beyond language, uh, what, what might we infer from pitch? Low pitch, uh, we reliably associate with larger objects, bigger objects, due to the really the physics of the sound. Long story, at least a little shorter, low pitch in advertising, it turns out, communicates larger product size. This intuitively makes sense. So, well, then how do you prove that? In this case, they put technology to use. 
what we did is, is went into a sound studio, um, made up a bunch of advertisements for products that didn't really exist. We now have access to a lot of inexpensive audio technology. It's easy to change the pitch of a voice or any sound with software. This would be their accomplice. In the first study in the paper, we recorded an advertisement for a, a sandwich. Uh, uh, and it's, it's a, a new, new sandwich coming out at a fictitious uh, restaurant, which we told participants was, was a real restaurant, but in a different region. And, and they believed that. And so they listened to this advertisement for the, the sandwich. And, and they, they know that they're participating, at least in this study, they, they knew they were participating in a, in a marketing lab. And, and so we, we told them that you know, they were just going to evaluate this advertisement and, and the product for us. And, and so very believable cover story. And, and we then asked them to evaluate it on, on a few different dimensions. And one of those is, is how big do you think the sandwich is? But here's the catch. What's the catch? The respondent heard only one of the two variations on that recorded ad. In one case, the pitch of the actor's voice was lowered. In the other, it was raised. Same actor, same copy, same exact recording, just a manipulation of the pitch. Did they make one of them sound like the chipmunks? <laughs> you would think so, no. They worked with a professional audio engineer, and they adjusted the pitch within a certain threshold on either end where it still sounded legitimate, like a real human voice. Here, have a listen. It's lunchtime. It's your time. Time to break away and treat yourself right for a while. Wow, that so copy is groundbreaking. I will remind you, this was not an experiment about creative copy. <laughs> but it's pretty consistent with other plugs for sandwiches that I've heard. So that's the high-pitched version. Now the low. It's lunchtime. It's your time. Time to break away and treat yourself right for a while. Luxuriate in your break time. Noticeable difference, right? Mm -hmm. And remember, after respondents heard the ad, they were asked how big they thought the sandwich was. And the people who heard that low, berry white version rated the sandwich as bigger. That kind of reminds me of the Arby's campaign with Ving Rhames. Yeah, you, you know, know that one? Yeah, Michael brought that up too. It launched after their study. Otherwise, he thinks it would have been an excellent case to explore. Arby's, we have the meats. Wait, hold on. We have the meats. That that I'm, that was I'm pretty good. It. You are crushing it. <laughs> yeah. By the way, this works in reverse too. There was another experiment that Michael and Kelly conducted, and in it, a laundry detergent was advertised with a higher pitched voice, and and it led to beliefs about not only a smaller container size of laundry, but more gentleness and greater softness for the clothes. Not only that, the high pitched voice condition led respondents to rate the detergent as more environmentally friendly. I'm a tiny Tinkerbell fairy who wants you to have clean clothes. Nailed that, it. Did I just sell it? You nailed it. And I definitely think you're environmentally conscious. I'm so friendly for the environment. <laughs> There's a caveat to this. The effect is most pronounced when there is more of a visual in the audience's head. That can be a literal visual, like what you might see in a TV ad. Little, or Little cleaning fairy in the sky. Yeah, yeah, perfect. Or it could just be more of a visual description in the audio copy. Either way, the pitch makes more of a difference when it has some sort of a visual. You know, in one study, we, we record an advertisement for a hamburger. And in one version of the advertisement, uh, we describe, you know, the buns and the beef patties and the dripping cheese and, and, and all this so that it's very visual, it's very concrete, and they can picture it. And then in another version of the ad, it's, it's a little more abstract. It's, uh, you know, when you're hungry, you want something delicious and wonderful, etc. So, so nothing really to visualize. The difference then, and, and then, and then you, you know, in both of those versions of the ad, you adjust uh, the pitch up and, and down and, and see what happens. 
and it was only in the in the the highly visible advertisement, the one that they could really picture the product, that the differences pop out. Uh, Michael also shared an experiment that did not make it into the published study, and this one's pretty cool. Let me guess, more food. Yeah, he and his colleagues had been going to this local self-serve frozen yogurt shop, and they got an idea. Made, a, made an advertisement for them, and, and, uh, and they let us stand in their store all day long. And uh, as people came in, we told them, you know, would you be willing to give us some feedback on this advertisement? We're, you know, getting ready to, you know, play this ad on the radio this summer. We just want your feedback. And if you do, we'll, we'll give you a, a you know, 10 or 20% discount on, on your yogurt today. So they randomly assign a version of the ad to each person willing to have a listen. Of course, one version is high pitch, the other is low pitch. Then they say thank you very much, and they give them this green cup, you know, that people believed was so they could get their discount, and it was. They did get a discount, but it also marked them for inclusion in the study. And they went ahead and served themselves yogurt and and purchased it and left. And what do you think happened? Did they rate it in terms of creaminess or something? No, this is even better. They kept track of how much yogurt people served themselves. No, that's cruel. That's sabotage. And uh, you know, we figured if, if. we got nothing other than some free yogurt out of it. It would have been an okay day, but we took the data back and and, uh, and analyzed it. And sure enough, people that had heard the lower pitched version of the ad served themselves more yogurt. Those are some sneaky froyo tactics. So I obviously love this stuff, but let's sum it up into a useful takeaway before we head off onto our next Sonic adventure. The very plainest takeaway is, is if you're a marketer and you you want to communicate big, tough, durable, strong. Etc. then be deliberate in in the sounds that you associate with your product. And and specifically from this research, the lower pitch is going to stick an image uh, in, in your consumer's mind of a bigger, tougher, stronger product. And remember, it's not just voice. It can be any sound. So this can apply to the music a consumer hears, too. And that's where we're going next. Stick around, because after the break, we're going to talk to a couple of folks who played with sound in chocolate. More up in a bit on the Findings Report. Hey, guys. This is Larry, and I want to say a few words about a cause I care a lot about, Alex's Lemonade Stand Foundation. ALSF is on a mission to end cancer for all children. It has raised over $170 million to fund more than 700 research projects that seek more effective and less toxic treatments for kids fighting cancer. But more can be done, and you can help. Become a member of our One Cup at a Time program and make a monthly contribution in any amount. You can find more info by going to alexslemonade.org. And thanks. Hey, it's Molly here. I have volunteered with the Art of Elysium for years doing improv for kids in the hospital. And this organization brings arts programs to children's hospitals, homeless shelters, special education schools, because they believe art heals. $25 covers the cost of an art kit, and you can donate at theartofelysium.org. Give the gift of art. Hi, this is Molly Schreiber. And Larry Vincent. And in the last half, we heard how sound, pitch specifically, can alter our perceptions of a product size. Low pitch makes us recall a product as big, meaty, plentiful. High pitch makes us think small, light, 
environmentally friendly. And Froyo is wonderful. Perfect segue, because we're actually going to match a playlist to a feast of chocolate. This story not only pairs music with food, but also a composer with a scientist. I'm Maxime Goulet, and I'm a composer who writes music for video games and music for a classical orchestra. My name is Professor Charles Spence. I'm head of the Crossmodal Research Laboratory at Oxford University. Um, I'm a gastrophysicist uh, working on the multisensory experience of food and drink. A gastrophysicist? That sounds uh, very Top Chef meets uh, Bill Nye science guy. It's wild. It sounds like a great gig. I asked him to tell us what it means to be a gastrophysicist. Here's what he said. Uh, I mean, it's lots of lots of food and drink, that's for sure. <laughs> lots of nice food and drinks. Well, then I am available to be a gastrophysicist. Me too. Charles has won all sorts of awards for his work, including the 2008 Ig Nobel Prize for Nutrition. <laughs> Ig Nobel Prize? What is that? It's, it's a parody of the Nobel Prize. It's awarded each year to celebrate, quote, unusual or trivial achievements in scientific research, end quote. Its charter says that it honors research that first makes people laugh and then makes them think. Now, that is my kind of science. I would have gotten into science more if it made me laugh first. And in all seriousness, Charles has also won a lot of awards for his research that's on the more reverent side. But I mentioned the Ig Nobel because he's a character. I had to chase him down across the globe from Australia to the UK to his farm in Colombia, where we did this interview by Skype. I kind of felt like Anderson Cooper. No, no, you are nothing like Anderson Cooper, Larry. He's the silver fox. He's the silver fox. All right, fine. But I did track him down with a little bit of serendipity. The story starts first, though, with Maxime. Like many artists, he finds inspiration for his compositions from everyday life. Let's say I'm in a restaurant and I look at the counter and I can see that someone paying is uh, trying to seduce the cashier and I can try to imagine the soundtrack of that would be more like romantic music. Or if I'm on the bus and I see two people fighting, I can imagine like more uh, tense music, more like a combat music. Everywhere Maxime looks, he sees music. This is very romantic. This is like a musical Amelie. So one day I come in into a chocolate shop and I was reading the description of the chocolate. And uh, the description were talking about flavor. They were talking about contrast of texture. And uh, you have all these in music as well. So Maxime gets an idea. So I thought, why don't I write a piece following the description of each of these chocolates? And Symphonic Chocolate is born. Love it. So the piece in Found Chocolate is four short pieces, and each piece uh, describes a different chocolate flavor. So the first movement is caramel chocolate, so it's very uh, smooth and lyrical. The second movement is dark chocolate, so it's very uh, intense and dramatic with tango rhythms. bitterness of the dark chocolate is represented by the, uh, the dissonance of the music. And the third movement is mint chocolate, so it's very fresh and light. Just like when you eat mint, you, you feel the, uh, the cold. So in the music, there's a lot of effects of the violin that makes kind of an icy cold flavor.
And the last movement is coffee-infused chocolate. So in this movement, you hear a lot of Brazilian rhythm, because for me, when you the, the coffee really relates to uh, Brazil, and it's really a, a beat music, just like when you listen, when you drink a coffee, you're really energetic. I will take the coffee chocolate, please. So how does this help marketers? Or does it? Or is this all just plain delightful? This became more than a composition. Maxime wanted to make it a true experience. So when the orchestra performs the piece, the audience has a box with the four chocolate and he can eat each chocolate corresponding to the music. So it's really a soundtrack to go with a chocolate tasting. And it was very well received. Like the piece of symphonic chocolate has been performed sometimes like a few years ago and people still remember going to the concert and eating the chocolate. Like the more there is sense connected to each other, the more you will memorize it. When I first heard caramel chocolate, I actually found myself craving caramel chocolate. Of course you did. It's a symphony about chocolate. It's permeating your brain. Larry, this is a trick. You've been tricked. Uh, I'd still like the chocolate. And Maxime was really intrigued by this, and he started searching the internet for science. And that led him to Charles. It was really interesting because when I discovered that he kind of um, uh, arrived to the same conclusion as me, but with some scientific backing, I was like, wow, this is incredible. This is kind of uh, adding credibility to the kind of thing that I want to do. And what was that? Charles specializes in how our mind processes information about food. Astrophysics being kind of the new science, the sort of study of the, the mind of the diner, um, and uh, with a focus on, on, on gastronomy, so nice food experiences. And the physics comes from psychophysics. Uh, it's kind of, sort of systematic measurement of, um, of what people perceive when you give them different kinds of foods or change the color or, or change the background music or change the chair they're sitting on. And we try and assess how that actually impacts people's perception, their behavior, their choices and their memory. The more I work on the show, the more I discover jobs that I have never heard of before. It's fun, right? Mm -hmm. As quirky as Charles's research might seem, though, it has a lot of very practical applications. So, for example, how... Uh, changing the visual appearance of a dish affects people's willingness uh, to pay and their appreciation of the food. Uh, so we find, for example, if you take salad and turn it into one of Kandinsky's paintings, uh, then people will pay significantly more for exactly the same ingredients with the artistic presentation rather than just as a tossed salad, say. We look at the impact of uh, latte art uh, on, on people's perception of coffee, again, the, the more you appeal to the eye, uh, the greater the perceived value for the customer. This reminds me of the painted blue moon murals mm. I've seen on the sides of buildings. Have you seen those? Uh, I have. And they, if you haven't seen them, they look like a Van Gogh, kind of impressionist and golden toned. And it's so striking and artistic. And yes, it really makes me want to have that beer. Now, I want a beer. But. I know. I, I would as well. <laughs> now, Charles has studied how, you know, things like the weight of a knife and fork at a restaurant might affect our willingness to pay more or to rate the food more highly. It's kind of a combination of work in the field and work in the laboratory, taking very precise measurements of different gastronomic experiences. All of these things, I think, do affect the choices we make, how we perceive what we eat and drink, uh, and how, how much of it we remember uh, thereafter. We can study it systematically, scientifically, and hopefully provide insights. Uh, in the first instance, working with sort of chefs and mixologists and baristas, the people who are most creative, I think, in taking the new science and making it tasty. But thereafter, think about how to roll out some of the insights uh, for the mass market. And very often that's done through 
kind of branded experiential events or through a sort of sensory apps tied to specific products or brands. Experiential events like Maxime's Symphony. Yes. A lot of Charles's work is focused on sound, in fact. Um, you could say it's his most famous work. Yeah, our first and most famous research in food was the uh, Sonic Chip, for which we got the Ig Nobel Prize in 2008, showing that if we change the sound of the crunch when people bite into potato chips, we can make them uh, appear fresher, tastier, and people like them more. Nobel Prize for Chip Crunch. Yeah, yeah, that sounds right. Ig Nobel. Ig Nobel. <laughs> right, right. Yes, so we've been working for well, 15 years now on um, sound and taste, sound and flavour. Uh, and we certainly think of sound as the forgotten flavour sense. Because when we think about you know, the taste of food and what we like to eat, maybe we think about what's going on in our taste buds, what we smell, what we see, maybe even what we feel. But very few people think about what we hear. The forgotten flavour sense. Sound can set expectations. Sound can accompany our overall perception of what we're tasting and smelling. Sound can help us recall the experience better, and that's what Charles and his team studies. And here's what he had to say about symphonic chocolate. And most of our research has been on how sound affects taste. I'm composing music to bring out a certain taste. The kinds of um, musical events that he curates and composes for maybe might operate in both directions. It might be how does the music affect the taste of the chocolate that you're eating in time with the movement of one of his pieces, but also in the reverse, if you've got that chocolate in your mouth that's minty or creamy or whatever it might be in terms of its flavour, how does that chocolate right now affect the way you interpret and enjoy the music you're hearing? Charles actually has a term for the effect sound might have on your sense of taste. Which is kind of sonic seasoning, we call it, where we can take uh, music or we work with composers, with sound designers, uh, with musicians to create music that has certain features or properties, a certain dominant pitch or roughness or tempo or certain instruments, uh, and by so doing systematically affect people's perception of the taste of the food and drink that they are consuming. So if we, for example, if we play uh, tinkling high-pitched music, uh, wind chimes or you can bring out the sweetness in a dark chocolate or a black coffee with a bit of sugar in it. If we play low-pitched brassy music instead, then we can bring out bitterness. And now we have the musical menus that allow us to pick off the shelf or to create music that will bring out sweet, sour, bitter, creamy. Get out of here. Okay, how does this work? Give me an example. This, this is dark magic. Have a listen. We were recently working in Nashville, Tennessee with a chef there in her restaurant with her food, uh, Chef Deb Paquet, showing that we could take one of her um, spicy mango salads and if we played a spicy tune at the same time, the diners in the restaurant eating her food rated that dish as, as significantly more spicy um, than, than diners without, without that sonic backdrop. So you're hearing the music used in that study. Sounds spicy. And Charles's work has been used in more challenging sonic environments too. For example... The noise of, of so many restaurants these days and of aeroplanes where diners may be subjected to you know, 100, 100 decibels of background noise so loud that it suppresses our ability to taste especially sweet and salty things. Well, everything tastes bad on airplanes. We know that. Yeah, well, it turns out sound may be partly to blame. So the point of all this 
was to impress upon you the importance of sound. How nuances like pitch can help an ad convey the size of a product, but also to show that sound can improve our enjoyment of a product experience, like eating chocolate. It can season our food. And the beautiful thing about sound is that it's pretty easy and inexpensive to use. That really, probably music is the simplest thing uh, to control and to change. Uh, if I told the restaurateur, you know, paint your walls bright pink, because that will make people spend more, probably they wouldn't do it. Whereas music, you know, you can change it, you can try, you can experiment. And that's the kind of thing that we encourage people to do based on the findings that would suggest, you know, that uh, if you want people to drink more than playing faster, louder music, uh, seems to encourage people to do so. If you want people to spend more, say, on the bottle of wine, then, uh, you know, play classical music. That seems to uh, uh, result in people in a variety of situations spending more because of the association with class. Where science, food and commerce merge. On that note, in the next episode of The Findings Report... Consumers are more wise to marketing and sales tactics than we give them credit. And sometimes, that wisdom can be a barrier to sales. On the next episode of The Findings Report, we delve into the domain of persuasion knowledge. Researchers Kent Grayson and Matt Tyzik clue us in on how it works, and author Paul Smith provides a strategy for getting past it. Coming up in the next episode of The Findings Report. Special thanks to our guests Michael Lowe, Maxime Goulet, and Charles Spence. Check out more of their work in the episode guide on our website at findingsreport.com. Speaking about cravings, we crave your feedback. Yeah, you see? Does that work? Mm, I cool. like that. Please send us your questions, comments, ideas for future shows. We love hearing from you. You can follow us on Twitter at Findings Report, and I can be reached at Mo Schreib. And you'll find me on Twitter at L. Vincent. You can also find the show on all other social media, Instagram, Facebook, Snapchat, LinkedIn, YouTube, you name it. But the best way to follow us is to subscribe to the show's podcast feed wherever you get your podcasts. You can also sign up for our weekly newsletter, which features news about new trends and insights from the world of consumer research. You can subscribe for free at findingsreport.com slash subscribe. We'll be back soon with another show. For The Findings Report, I'm Larry Vincent. And I'm Molly Schreiber. Till next time.